Um, let's, let's start this uh, passage, this very famous passage, uh, with really the only, only place uh, that, that we could, and, um, and that's the Barbie movie, right? Uh, how many people saw the Barbie movie? Oh my goodness. This, this is the existential movie of our age. I don't recommend it, but it is the most existential movie of our age. And I actually don't care uh, so much about the movie, but the, the song that came out that went with the, uh, the movie is a, a song sung by Billie Eilish. Um, and the name of the song is, What Am I Made For? And it's, uh, I don't know if you know Billie Eilish, but she has just a, a beautiful, haunting, breathy voice. And these, these lyrics, they just kind of come in waves of, of contemplation and, and angst, really, is, is underneath uh, this song. But uh, it, 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 it ostensibly is singing about Barbie and her discovery that she's a toy. But in reality, the song, I think, is the song of this age. It is asking the question that really gnaws at all of us. What am I made for? What am I made for? The first lyric uh, of this uh, song goes like this. I used to float. Now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now what I was made for. What was I made for? I, I, I have a feeling that if you're honest with yourself, the more life you have lived, the more you have confronted that question. The more that question uh, works itself into every quiet moment, every 3 a.m. visit to the bathroom, you have a crisis that takes the form of the question, what am I made for? That's the question of our age. What is our purpose? What is our purpose? We are in an age that is full of freedom and luxuries and opportunity and permissions to, to go and be and do anything you want. And yet, many of us are still struggling with the question, of our purpose. How, how do we know that we're struggling with purpose? Because so many of us are, are restless and anxious and fearful. The, these seem to be the, 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 the state of so many of our hearts. And so we live in an age of people grasping what is our purpose. And, and maybe we think, well, that's why we're at church. We know that our church uh, is, is all about, uh, we know our purpose. But at the, actually, the, the, the issue of purpose is very much at the heart of the text that we have been looking at over the last several weeks. I mean, we have been going through a, a couple, uh, through, through several challenges of the religious leaders of Israel coming to Jesus and trying to question him, trying to discredit him. And why are they doing this? Because Jesus came onto their turf. He brought the temple uh, and, and cleared it out. He made words of judgment against the religious leaders. And so these religious leaders have now become restless, anxious, and fearful because Jesus has challenged them at the question of what is their role? Who are they? 
What is their purpose? You see, what, what went wrong with the, the rulers is not that they weren't aware of the word of God or knew the will of God. It is that they became rulers who lost their purpose. They became knowers about God. They became knowers about the rules. But they had no knowledge of him personally. They had no awareness of him in a relationship. And the most condemning evidence of that is when they met the one who is the will and word of God enfleshed, they saw him as a threat and a danger, and they believed that their purpose was to get rid of him, to bring him into condemnation. You see, they were knowers about God. They were knowers about God's uh, word and his rules and his will. But when God visited them in the flesh, they were clueless. And they were actually opposed to him. You see, the real religious leaders of Israel had lost the question, what am I made for? They had become people whose purpose was not about the relationship, but about keeping the rules. And so, whether you are here today without an answer to the question, what am I here for? Or whether you are here and you think you do know what you are here for, but you, you wonder, are you off course? Have you gone adrift? Are you where you were supposed to be? Jesus is going to answer for us and reset us, recalibrate us to the purpose of what we were made for. Jesus declares that what we were made for is very simple. We were made for love. We were made for love. And that is what he brings the entire conversation to as we get into this passage today. We need this. We need this message. Because as we live in restlessness and anxiety and fear, we need to know what is true, where is our purpose. As we live in a culture growing in anxiety and restlessness and fear, we need to be a place and a people that shows there is a place of rest. There is a place of security. There is an all-satisfying purpose to our lives. So if we were to uh, take Billie Eilish and move her back uh, 20 centuries, we might hear her saying the words that Augustine said famously about our purpose. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And so what we need to grasp as we go through this passage is what we are made for. And Jesus does that by explaining to us the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is the love of God. 
So we're going to go through our passage today why, and, and answer this basic question. Why is the love of God the greatest commandment? We're going to see this uh, under three answers. The love of God is the greatest commandment first because God created us to love. God created us to love. So uh, we've had several different encounters with Jesus. We've had the Sadducees and we've had the Pharisees and the Herodians and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the religious authorities. Now we have an individual scribe comes up to Jesus uh, in verses 28 to 34, to ask him the question, what is the uh, greatest commandment? Which commandment is most important of all? Now, this uh, particular scribe seems to be a little different in the way and the kind of question he is asking compared to the previous questions. We, we have noticed that the previous questions all seem to have a, 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 a trap in them. They were all seeking to get Jesus caught up in his words, all trying to get Jesus in a position of weakness where they could exploit him either uh, in a charge to the Romans or in a wedge uh, against the people. But this scribe seems to be asking a little bit more of a, of a, of a neutral question. It, it seems to be coming from some respect that he has gained in watching Jesus master all of these other questions. And so this scribe wants to know what this particular rabbi Jesus thinks is the most important commandment. And, and, and he is asking him to do something that was very popular, very common among uh, the teachers of the scriptures in the first century. Because one of the marks of, of a quality teacher is how well they are able to grasp the essence and summarize the, the message of the word of God. And so one of the ways that, that a scribe can evaluate is this teacher really profound, really close to the heart of the word, or, or is he kind of a sophist, kind of a pretender, is how astute does he grasp the message of the word of God? And so this scribe comes to see, is Jesus truly a man of wisdom and understanding? And he asks him, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus looks at him, and we can already tell that this engagement is different than the others. There is no question that he is looking at the scribe and seeing an agenda or seeing uh, the guise of hypocrisy or seeing some trick. He recognizes that there is a sincerity in the question. And so he answers forthrightly and clearly. And what is his answer? He, he tells the, the scribe that the, the uh, most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus is, is in fact quoting a scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, and 5, which is known as the Shema. It is the, the, the uh, kind of basic creed of all Israelites that the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so Jesus says that this is the summation, the greatest, the pinnacle commandment. And so Jesus looks at this man and he says that what you are supposed to be is a lover of God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, 
all your strength. And we can miss something in the, in the English. In the Greek, the word ek, which is out of or from, is modifying each and every one of these terms. So Jesus is not merely saying, love God with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your strength. He is saying, love God from your mind, from your heart, from your soul, from your strength. He is saying that the foundation, the wellspring of everything that you do, all that constitutes who you are, needs to be grounded and formed in the love of God right? The love of God is not accidental that you bring in. It is something that comes out because it is the deepest, most uh, undiluted and unquestioned motivation of your heart, right? And the love that Jesus calls us to have when he points us to to this passage in Deuteronomy is, is not a partial love. It is not a situational love. It is a complete love. When he piles these four terms, heart, mind, soul, and strength, he is saying that your love for God is not just feeling, but also thinking. It is not just believing, but it is also doing. It is not just in private, but also in public. It is not just an internal love, but an external love. It is not just constant, but it is fervent. The love that Jesus describes when he puts in front of us the Shema as the core highest commandment is that love of God is to be all-consuming. It is to be who we are. The answer to the question, who are you, if this commandment is being lived out, is I am a lover of God, right? And then Jesus brings to this commandment a second commandment, Leviticus 19.18, which says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what is fascinating about Jesus in his answer is that he really fuses these two commandments together. Jesus does not in his understanding think that there can be a love of God and you can check that box and or you can be a love of neighbor and you can check that box. In Jesus's understanding of the the most important commandment, there is one, one box to check, love of God and love of neighbor. They're not separate boxes. And we can see that if we look at how he describes the situation in verse 31. Look at how Jesus summarizes what he says in verse 31. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, the two that he just listed. So he is treating these two commandments as kind of two sides of one coin. Right? You can't have one without having the other. And we we see this fusion of love of God and love of neighbor uh, held throughout the scriptures. One of the best articulations of this is in 1 John chapter 4, where uh, in the 20th verse, the Apostle John says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do do you see how the, the understanding of if you are going to love God, you're going to love those made in the image of God. You can't love God and not love his image bearers, right? And if you're not loving his image bearers, you're not really loving God. These two have no uh, daylight between them as, as Jesus articulates this commandment. They are held together as mutually reinforcing, as indivisible. They must be held one and the same. And so I appreciate James Edwards. He, he has a comment on how Jesus masterfully puts these two commandments together so that we cannot pull them apart. And the putting them together is so that we do not twist and abuse what it means to love neighbor or what it means to love God. Uh, James Edwards says this in his commentary. Jesus' answer avoids the danger of mysticism, which results in a detached and disembodied love of God. Right? It's easy to say, I love God, if the love of God doesn't actually require anything of you, right? But when the love of God actually requires you to show the love of God by loving the image bearers of God, then your love of God has real tangibility to it, right? So it can't just be mystical, it can't just be religious, it has to be real. But then at the other side, uh, Edwards continues, as well as the danger of humanism which acts toward humanity without reference to God and without the understanding that human beings are inviolable creatures of God. What does that mean? There is all sorts of definitions of love in our culture, are there not? And cultures are always changing the meaning of love. And so if we make the reference love of neighbor, what humanity or the culture around us or the age that we are in defines love as, we may very well love people in ways that are damaging and not truly honoring the way they were created in the image of God. Let me just give you an example. What if we say, we say uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, what if part of loving yourself is sinning a little bit? Your definition of, I love myself, I give myself permission to, to do this thing. I, I know it's wrong, but it relieves me, it makes me feel happy, it gives me a little extra joy, and so I love a little sin. So then, therefore, to love my neighbor is to let them have a little sin. Is that love of neighbor the love of neighbor that, that Jesus is talking about in this passage? Absolutely not. See, that, that is allowing the love of neighbor to be defined by the moment, to be defined by the culture. The love of neighbor, by being connected to the love of God, is connected to what God says love is, right? And God determines what it means to love our neighbor. And it never means sin a little, <laughs> right? Or wink at something that is unacceptable in God's eyes. Uh, in fact, if you go to... Um, Let's see if I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, if you look at, at how these uh, work themselves out, we can look at the uh, letter of James. 
James, the, the brother of Jesus, writes one of the most practical, boots-on-the-ground uh, books about how to live out the, the faith in Jesus that is in the New Testament. And he says in his letter, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, this is what love is. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's different than a humanistic love and let love kind of definition, right? The definition of loving our neighbor biblically is to seek to save them from sin, is to seek to turn them from sin, is to occasionally, necessarily utter the words, repent. That's part of loving our neighbor as ourself. Because the the true love of God towards your neighbor is turning them away from any path that would cause corruption or loss of intimacy or separation from God. Right? And so uh, these two commandments have been, have been brought together and not to be thought of separately. Now, when, um, when you think about this commandment, love your God, love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, does any word in there bother you? Yeah, <laughs> the word all, the word all, right? That, that covers always and everywhere. <laughs> that is non-negotiable. That is, a, that is the umbrella term. And it, may, it, it, it causes me to ask this question. Maybe, maybe it doesn't cause you, but it causes me the question. It is all possible, right? Is it really possible to love anything with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And here is where we discover the genius of this commandment from God. Because we are told in this commandment that love is all-consuming. Love is all-consuming. So let me roll back the clock uh, 20 years And look at this uh, young man and this young woman, haven't aged a day, right? But this is Becky and I. This is uh, within a year of of us getting uh, married. Uh, This is the night that we had the very first conversation. Do you think we should get married someday? And we just kind of, you know, played with the thought. But I can tell you, when I fell in love with Becky, it was natural, that I loved her with every thought, with every feeling, with every moment, with every piece of energy. She was on my mind all the time. She was in my dreams when I slept. She was the first thing I thought of in the morning. She was the person I called and texted as many moments as I could. It was no burden if somebody told me, I want you to love completely. I want you to love all of yourself towards this person, right? And it hasn't changed, has it, Becky? Not a moment has slacked. Well, anyhow, when we fall in love, it is not burdensome to think 
all my heart, mind, soul, and strength is going to go to this object of love. That is how we are made. We are just made to love. The same thing happened when my kids were born. I mean, my goodness, it was, it was uh, uh, like an explosion in my heart that suddenly all of this love was just there, and it was all there, right? So, so what, what we have to recognize is that, that love is what we are. The great commandment knows our nature, that we are made to love with all of ourselves. The, the uh, philosopher James K.A. Smith uh, wrote in, in one of his books, which I might have taken off my... No, yeah, here, no, no. Uh, he, he looks at the, the essential nature of humanity, and he says that we are essentially and ultimately lovers. Our ultimate love is what we worship. You see, what, what Smith is recognizing is that underneath everything about us is desire, is love. We are made in the image of God. And what are we told God is? God is love. And so as image bearers, we love. This is the profound insight of Scripture. Scripture knows us, knows what we are created for, knows our purpose, knows how we have been made. Why? Because it's the only book whose author created us. And this is why when we read the scriptures, we are reading the truth that speaks to our heart like no other book. God says that the greatest commandment is to love with all of yourself because as our creator, he knows that's how I made you. That's what you're for. You see, this is the answer to Billie Eilish's song. What am I made for? You are made for love. And so the real question that the great commandment puts in front of us is not can we love with all of ourselves, but what will we love with all of ourselves, right? All of us in this room are loving something with all of yourself. But is it the right thing? The great commandment reveals that God loves us in giving us this command because If you're like me and you have put your love into other things in this world, uh, be they pleasure, be they career, be they success, even being something as lovely as Becky, there is eventually something that comes short. There is something unsatisfactory. There is a place where you say, is this it? And that is because there is nothing that our hearts can find in this world that we will not exhaust and get to the place of, is this it? Except for one. And that is love of our Creator. I love Psalm 16, 11, which tells us, you make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
You see, God calls us to put our love in him because it is in him that we will find the only place where our love is never disappointed. Our love is truly satisfied. Now, when we take up this question, it is not can we love, but what will we love? We have to then recognize the second answer to why the love of God is the great commandment. And that is this. God will judge us by our love. God will judge us by our love. The, uh, the great reformer, Martin Luther, who was a, a, a lawyer before he was a theologian, uh, studied the great commandment. And he recognized that in the great commandment is the definition of the greatest sin. Because if the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then the greatest sin, the greatest transgression, is to fail to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so he recognizes that if we do not actually love God fully as the commandment describes, then we are great lawbreakers. Right? And so Jesus actually gives two pronouncements about how the greatest commandment, our fidelity to it, will play into our judgment. He has a a passage where he speaks directly to the, the school of the scribes, and then he speaks to this individual or of this individual widow. Let's look at what he says about the scribes. In verses 38 to 40, He he, uh, pays attention to the scribes. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Pay attention to this. They will receive the greater condemnation. They will receive the greater condemnation condemnation. See, Luther wasn't wrong. (laughs) The greatest lawbreaker is the one who violates the greatest commandment. Dwell upon this. These scribes would put me to shame in terms of their knowledge of the Bible, in terms of their, their, their commitment to the scriptures, in terms of memorization, their spiritual disciplines. Every single one of us would just not measure up to one of these scribes in terms of their devotion and their commitment to knowing the scriptures and to living them out. There is no charge that can be made against them for ignorance. They are full of truth. There is no charge that can be made against them for their beliefs. Their theology is perfect. There is no charge that you could make about their behavior. They do and say everything that the word of God says they are to do and say. And yet, Jesus says of this group of people, they have the greater condemnation. This group of righteous people have in front of them a far greater judgment. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with them is that their love has become disordered. They have somehow, in their great knowledge and and, and, and devotion, supplanted the love of God with the love of self. 
mean, listen to what Jesus says. He says, who like, could also translate it as love, who love to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts and for a pretense, make long prayers. Who is the love of their heart? It is themselves. They are loving themselves with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And because that is the ultimate fruit of their life, they are headed towards the greater condemnation. You see, what what the greatest commandment tells us is that the greatest sin is to give the love meant for God to something else. And it's not like it's victimless. When the love of self takes over, we become increasingly selfish. Jesus says that these righteous people in their righteousness are devouring widows' houses. And we don't exactly know what that means. But it, 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 it apparently means that in their, in their self-absorption, in their high and mighty views of themselves, they are creating conditions where widows who are poor and desperate are becoming more and more used by their presence. And it may be that the next story is an example of that. We'll see a, young, a, 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 a widow who has nothing left But because she wants to love God and follow the the, the love of God with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength, she she gives all that she has to live on. Who knows whether the the widow is partly uh, being uh, driven in this direction, even though her heart is in the right place, but, but perhaps this is something that is a consequence of the way that the scribes are treating the The widows. Beloved, one of the greatest deceits of our, of our heart is that we will only be judged by what we have done. The greatest commandment says that we will be judged according to what our heart loves. And so it is a call. Where is our heart's greatest love? Now, the second story is completely different. It's the story of the the widow. And so we have this this woman, and I I love looking at different artwork for this this, uh, passage. But I I was moved by this one because it reminds us the widow probably had a kid. Probably probably was a single mother. And and I mean, her life is, is extra hard, being a widow and a mother. And yet... Her devotion to God, she takes the little that she has and she gives it all to God in the, in the offering box. Now, it, it makes me think about this widow versus the story that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago of the rich young ruler. What was the reason that the rich young ruler could not follow Jesus? Because he had so much He couldn't afford to give it away and follow him. And here we have a widow. She doesn't have much, 
but she gives all that she has as an act of love and devotion to God. Well, what's the difference between the two? The rich young ruler, for all of his obedience, for all of his righteousness, for doing all the things he was supposed to do since he was a child, did not have in his heart love of God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the widow, she does. Because when it comes to showing her devotion, she literally gives all that she has, everything that she has to live on. Now, there is something beautiful in this passage. Jesus' ear is as tuned to the two small, faint pennies going into the jar as the large, plunking coins. His eye is upon this widow and her devotion and her love, and he identifies her for special commendation. You see, acts that are motivated by love for God receives great commendation from God. The the, the act of this widow, as small as it may be to the treasury, is an eternal treasure in in, uh, the eyes of Jesus towards her. And so imagine, imagine, go into eternity We are still celebrating this woman's smallest gift as being the most beautiful because of the heart that Jesus saw in it. This is so powerful. There is no small thing done if it is done out of love for God. It will ring in the treasures of heaven for eternity. What do these two stories tell us? They really say something pretty important. Our love cannot be hidden. Our love cannot be hidden. What does your life reveal is your great love? I have had the privilege of doing several funerals. And there is always this time where I speak to the family and the people who know the deceased best to get the information for their eulogy. What what do you want said about this person? What was this person who passed away? What was their life about? And it always breaks my heart when I am dealing with somebody who maybe lived on this earth for 80 years and I'm being told things about... uh, you know, how they, they were so successful in their career or, or how they loved uh, baking or how they uh, were great vacationers or whatever they filled their time with. And there is nothing said, not one thing said about a relationship, about a love for God. It is worth all of us taking time to reflect on the fact that we will be eulogized. And probably the people who eulogize us, if they don't know that your love of God is number one, it probably isn't. Now, 
unless you're a real magician. So when God looks at your heart, what will he find to be its greatest love? Now, the third answer to the the question, why is the love of God the greatest commandment, is this. God has made our love for his son. So we we really end with two questions at this point. How do we love God fully? And and where does Christ fit in to the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers this in this passage, verses 35 to 37. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus finally takes the stage, and he decides to put a question in front of all of the religious leaders and all of the scribes and the crowd. And he goes to Psalm 110, a psalm that is written by David. And he brings out of this text a question that was an imponderable. What is the answer to this question? You see, the, 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 the people were all looking for the Messiah to be the son of David, and the Messiah was going to be in the lineage of the son of David. But in Psalm 110, David describes himself praying to the Lord who is speaking to another person who is his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, and that second person, the my Lord, is understood to be the Messiah. And so Jesus is asking, who is this person who is greater than David, who David calls Lord, who God in heaven has a conversation with? Who is this Lord that the Lord is speaking to? And so Jesus is bringing to the eyes of all of these learned scribes a mystery in the scriptures, that in the scriptures there is what we would call intra-Trinitarian dialogue. There is conversation between multiple members of a Godhead. The first time we see this is in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in in our image. Who's the us? Who's the plural there? But also here we have in Psalm 110 a conversation between two figures in the Godhead called Lord. And so Jesus is revealing that the God that we are to worship with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is not uh, a single person, but is a trinity. This is the first uh, revelation from Jesus of the triune nature of God. Now, when we speak of trinity, I can't give you a full sermon on trinity, but but there are kind of three three, uh, rules about the trinity. There's one God. Nobody believes in three gods. There is one God made, in, made up of three persons, and each person is fully God. So in this passage, we have these three persons on display. We have one, the Holy Spirit, who is revealing this to David. Then we have the Lord, who is the Father, and then this person called my Lord, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. And so what Jesus is doing is he is saying that the greatest commandment entails a love 
of the Christ. Because the Christ is a member of the Godhead. Right? And so, when Jesus reveals this nature of the Trinity, the, the greatest commandment entails a personal relationship with Jesus. Another way of saying that is that God has made our love for his Son. So there's this strange little phrase as we uh, conclude. Jesus says to the scribe who agrees with him about the greatest commandment, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. The scribe recognizes that the love of God is is the greatest commandment and love thy neighbor, uh, that those are the commandments that summarize all of the scriptures. But he is not yet in the kingdom. That knowledge is not yet in the kingdom. Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. What what does he mean? Where does he have to go? What's missing? What Jesus is saying is, look at me. The scribe was conversing with the Lord. The scribe is conversing with the very one that the scriptures say, love with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength. How staggering is it to think that this scribe has just begun a conversation with the Lord? This tells us something about about who the Lord is. The remarkable thing about the gospel is God came to us not like a king. He came to us as a neighbor. He dwelled among us and he loved us with his whole self. The Lord is right there to be believed upon. You are not far from the kingdom. Now when when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, he's quoting this royal psalm about the enemies will be put under your feet. You know what is the biggest shock to me? is that the feet that will be the feet of our Lord, this kingly image, those feet that will rule the entire creation, before they rule, they will be pierced. The feet of our Lord, which are royal feet, will be pierced first. Why? Because God desires our salvation, not our judgment. God sent his son into the world so that our disordered hearts that want to love self or love this creation more than God could see the love of God so purely and so powerfully in the son that we would repent and that we would come to him The greatest love is found in Jesus. He loves the widow and he loves the scribe. He loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He came to lay down his life to take away our eternal condemnation and to give us his eternal commendation. So I want to leave you with one question. Do you struggle with purpose?
Have you drifted into rules over relationship? The answer that Jesus gives us here is to make him your greatest love. How do we do that? Allow the love of the gospel. The love of the one who took the nails for you to enter your heart. And your heart will be filled with an all-consuming love for Jesus. Amen?